Late in the evening on April 25, 1978, 20-year-old Cynthia Douglas limped out of a small white bungalow in Kansas City, Missouri. Though Cynthia had been shot in the thigh, she managed to make her way across the street where she found a 17-year-old girl outside and asked the girl to hide her while they waited for police to arrive. Cynthia was transported to the closest hospital where she was treated for her injuries. She was the only one of four who were shot and managed to survive her injury. When police arrived, they found Cynthia screaming with the gunshot wound above her left knee. She was covered in not just her own blood, but that of her best friend and two friends as well. Hi, I'm Catherine. And before we get into today's episode, I have a few announcements. Number one, back by popular demand, another round of Intuitive Development 101. This is for anyone who's just starting to dive into their intuition, who's maybe having trouble in psychic intuition, not, not just trusting your gut, but able is learning to dive into connecting to spirit, to trying to understand who their spirit guides are, or if they're receiving messages from spirit, how to more effectively do that, how to connect as a medium, very basic ground level 101 work. Okay. And it's still on a sliding scale basis. So you can pay what you're comfortable paying for it. This time, class starts on March 7th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it runs for the next six weeks. We meet for 45 minutes an hour, forty-five minutes to an hour each week over Zoom and have messaging access during the course as well. All sessions are recorded, so if you miss a class or two, you won't fall behind. This class always fills up, and it's always a good time. We really like to laugh a lot in these classes. It's nothing so serious. I believe in developing intuition with fun and being very laid back about it. And while learning all of like the safety things and and just really getting to know each other during the class, I really, really love this group work. I cannot wait to see new faces there. My second announcement, I am now taking private one-on-one clients again for all things intuitive development. Now, this is absolutely going to cost a little bit more than doing group work with me. So if you're more concerned about cost factor, absolutely join in with the group. If you're willing to dive in and work one-on-one in a more intensive kind of session, then go ahead and check out the intuitive development mentorship. However, I'm also offering personal development mentorship as well. I'm currently working with two clients and have room for one more at the time. And this is more work about learning to trust yourself, to trust your voice within, to go for the things that you feel like you could never really succeed at in life, to feel confident and empowered again, or for the first time ever. All of that can be found in the show notes as per usual or on any of my socials. Book a mentorship consultation for free if you're interested in any one-on-one work. Just one more heads up. I'm taking a brief pause from consistently posting Thursday episodes while I'm pouring into my trauma recovery classes that start this month. Let's get into this episode. When police approached the home on South Benton Avenue, before they even went inside, they could see blood on the door and smeared between barred windows. As they entered, they found a man laying face down in the living room with his hands tied behind his back. As they made their way into the bedroom, they found a woman slumped, sitting on the floor with her hands tied in front of her. And then in the same bedroom was a man tipped over on a bed with his wrist tied up and his feet hanging off the edge of the bed. All three victims had been shot in the head. They were identified as 22-year-old Sherry Black, 21-year-old Larry Ingram, 
and 20-year-old John Walker. Cynthia had pretended to be dead until the four assailants left the home before she could leave to find help. While it's unclear when exactly she left the hospital, she was questioned by the police on the 25th, the same evening that this happened, and brought to the police station later on the 26th to identify a suspect in a police lineup. The evening before, Cynthia had been sipping cognac and smoking weed with Sherry, a friend of hers, and Walker, her boyfriend, and Walker's friend Larry when the house was ambushed. She was able to identify two of the men for police right away, but was unsure of who the other two were. So one of these men, the unknown men, actually had a brown paper bag over his head during the attack, which just sounds horrifying to me, while the other unidentified male was holding a shotgun and repeatedly screaming at her to not look at him. The two she knew she identified as Vincent Bell and Kilm Atkins, and they would admit their guilt later on. While sources say that she was able to deliver those names to authorities, Bell and Atkins weren't arrested until June of that year. They had fled to Wichita, Kansas, where they were arrested and brought back and charged with homicide. So let's go back to the morning of the 26th, though, the night after the the day after the shooting took place. Police had Cynthia come to the station still covered in blood and plug your ears if you want to, but in literal brain matter, she was asked to identify a suspect in a lineup. She identified 18-year-old Kevin Strickland by his nickname, Nordy. Flustered, exhausted, and severely traumatized, I mean, probably still in shock when she told Detective Richard Zulik that she didn't recognize any of the men in the lineup, and she just didn't know, he encouraged her, really pushed her to select the one known as Nordy. She didn't know Strickland well, but she did at least know who he was. Zulik told her that as soon as she picked someone, this would all go away and she could leave and forget about all of these men and about all that happened. That seems really letter of the law, huh? So Strickland insisted that he had nothing to do with the murders and that he had only heard about them from watching the news the evening before. He'd been inside on the phone with the mother of his new baby girl, only seven weeks old, and they were sorting out what time she'd be dropping his daughter off in the morning. He had the news on and saw the coverage of what had happened. That's at least what he told the authorities anyway. When his girlfriend came by his house on the morning of the 26th, two Kansas City police detectives came in behind her and asked Strickland to come to the police station with them. When he tried to ask questions, they told him he had no choice but to just go with them. If you're not under arrest, I really don't think that's the case, but I digress. Once at the station and informed as to why he was even there, he was convinced that if he stood in a lineup, the living victim would never pick him because he wasn't there. Little did he know, though, that this would in fact be the nail in the coffin. Detective Richard Zulik was pushing her to choose him as the third offender and even had a reputation of using shady tactics to get what he wanted from witnesses and victims. Roughly five months after this scenario played out with Miss Douglas, Zulik killed his own wife and in a twisted, brutal murder-suicide at that. So he clearly was not in the right state of mind to be doing anything, let alone police work. Strickland was arrested and charged with murder. The lineup that he thought would save him put him behind bars. An eyewitness testimony isn't accurate, and that's understood today, but in 1978, Cynthia Douglas was the only living witness to the crime that occurred, and her testimony was exactly what got Strickland convicted of three murders and one attempted homicide. 
She was in a state of shock and trauma and hysteria. She shouldn't have been there identifying a victim and, and definitely not one that the entire, excuse me, identified a perpetrator. And it, her, his entire trial literally hinged on her testimony. Strickland wasn't there, but he was connected to the group of men who were responsible for the murders. The evening of the 25th of April, Bell, Atkins, Abbott, and a 16-year-old who remains unnamed publicly stopped outside of Strickland's house to chat with him until Strickland left to go spend time with his baby girl. The guys were on their way back from a bar. They had just been having a couple of beers, and they stopped to chat. But the birth of Strickland's daughter had sort of shook him from some poor decisions that he'd been making since his parents' divorce around two years prior. During that time, he'd fallen away from his good boy persona and went from fishing with his great uncle, building go-karts, playing baseball, and being a junior deacon at his church, to hanging around with Vincent Bell, a troublemaker who had just left a juvenile delinquent center. It was his fingerprint on Bell's car that police later used as proof that he had been present during the commissioning of the crime, though Strickland and Bell both testified to the car being used by Strickland just a few days earlier. So, of course, his print was on it. To me, this is kind of a reach for evidence of his involvement, but again, it's the 70s, and he was a black guy during an incredibly high rate of crime. And it's it's honestly just not shocking, sadly, and honestly not shocking. Strickland didn't stay out for too long to talk to these guys as he was on his way to go spend time with his daughter. Atkins and Abbott were looking to cause trouble that evening. They were literally looking to get in trouble, to get revenge. Ingram, one of the men who was shot, was known to hold gambling parties at his home, the small white bungalow on South Benton Avenue, and he'd recently won $300 off of Atkins using loaded dice in a game of craps. He was supposed to be holding another one of these parties that night, so Atkins, Abbott, Bell, and the unnamed 16-year-old stormed the bungalow, ransacked it, and shot everyone execution style. Except for Cynthia Douglas, who took a hit to the thigh, slumped over in her chair, and played dead next to her best friend, Sherry. This brings us back to her running out of the house to help to find help and law enforcement arriving. The story airing on the news and for whatever reason, Strickland being brought in for questioning. Strickland was the first to be arrested because remember, Bell and Atkins had fled town. When they were arrested for the murders in June of that same year, just a few months later, Bell told authorities right then that Strickland was not involved. Authorities weren't budging, though. Bell and Adkins both pled guilty and were sentenced to 20 years. They actually served less than 10 of those years before being paroled. Both Adkins and Bell were relentless in letting authorities, lawyers, the judge, everyone know that Strickland was completely innocent of any wrongdoing involving these murders. Abbott was a named suspect, was never charged. And neither was the un, the publicly unnamed 16-year-old. He was mentioned in police reports. So if you're thinking like, of course, authorities thought that they would say Strickland wasn't involved because why would they want a rat on their buddy? Well, they turned in the other two. They said, yeah, these were the other two guys involved. And still somehow police never went to arrest these guys. They were never charged. And in 1979, Strickland went to a jury trial, refusing to plead guilty to a crime he didn't commit. He really believed that he wouldn't be convicted because, again, he wasn't there and the justice system would work for him. The entire trial hinged on Douglas's testimony. She testified that there was, quote, no doubt in her mind that Strickland was there that night. She went so far as to call it a fact. 
This was quite literally the only evidence against him outside of the fingerprint that all insisted was there because Strickland had used Bell's car days prior. Strickland's girlfriend was able to provide an alibi for him as well. And I know this was the 70s, but I'm fairly certain phone records could have corroborated this this testimony, this alibi for him. They were on the phone during the time the murders took place. There was no way for him to physically be there. The jury was composed of all white people, with the exception of one female of color. She refused to change her vote to guilty while every single juror quickly arrived at a guilty verdict. So the jury was hung. After failing to convict him, one of the prosecutors allegedly walked over to the defense table and said, this won't happen at the next trial. Strickland's second trial began only a few short months later. This time, the jury was an all-white jury. From what I understand, he was very quickly convicted of one count of capital murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Those there describe Strickland's reaction as a loud and intense eruption of tears. According to Eric Wesson, the editor of the Kansas City Call, the decision was clearly racist, and Strickland was guilty before a word was even spoken in the courtroom. He was only 19 years old and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 50 years. Only four months later, Bell himself told the court that Strickland was wrongly imprisoned and that Douglas had confused him with someone else. A year after Strickland's conviction, Bell again told the judge that Strickland was not there. And like I said, he told the truth about the other people who were there. He let them know someone else was there. So why would they leave Strickland out then? It just doesn't add up. Not long after, Cynthia heard what Bell had done after the first time, and she went to the prosecution and told them that she was wrong and had been confused that the detectives pressured her into accusing Strickland. The prosecutor told her she was going to be charged with perjury and that she needed to get the hell out of there. That was enough to scare her away when she was younger, but she went back again in the 1990s to speak to the prosecution, and they warned her still she'd be charged with perjury. So in 1980, Strickland filed for an appeal, but his appeal was dismissed by the Supreme Court of Missouri. Fast forwarding here plenty of time, in 2004, Miss Douglas went to Eric Wesson and told him what had happened, right down to the detective pushing her to say that it was Nordy. She went back to him yet again in 2009, and she would tell literally anyone who would listen that Strickland didn't do it and that she was wrong. She was tortured by Strickland's imprisonment due to her testimony. It all but consumed her life. Miss Douglas had to actually move away from the Oklahoma City area for her own safety and protection following the trial. Both her ex-husband and sister signed sworn affidavits about how she believed Strickland was innocent and that she'd been pressured into naming him. While working for the Jackson County Family Court Division, she actually wrote an email to the Midwest Innocence Project about Strickland's wrongful conviction. She wrote, I'm seeking information on how to help someone that was wrongfully accused. I was the only eyewitness and things were not clear back then, but now I know more and I would like to help this person if I can. Strickland signed an application for the Innocence Project to investigate his case as well. And in 2013, Bell signed an affidavit that stated Strickland was not there and had no knowledge of the murder at all. These people, their stories did not change. They did not change at all because it was the truth. And it's so just mind boggling to know that all of law enforcement just collectively was like, we don't care. 
this is just the way that it is and we're not changing this. I'm telling you the truth today that Kevin Strickland wasn't there is what Bell wrote. He wasn't at the house that day. I'm telling the state and the society out there right now, Kevin Strickland wasn't there at that house. It seemed as if more attention was coming his way about reinvestigating. And in some twist of events, Miss Douglas's ex-husband, Ronald Richardson, was actually incarcerated with Strickland and told him that Cynthia was doing everything she could to get him out of there, that she was torn up over what happened. And he believed that the police had exploited her and the trauma she'd been through watching her best friend and two others get shot and die right in front of her. In 2015, unfortunately, Cynthia passed away at 57 years old. At 62, Adkins was still insisting that Strickland was not there that night. In the time that Strickland spent in jail for a crime he did not commit, Adkins and Bell served roughly 10 years, were released in 1989 and 1990, and then reincarcerated for drug-related crimes and freed again. Abbott was later incarcerated in Denver, Colorado with a life sentence for robbery, According to one of the victims present during the robbery, Abbott had held the gun to their head and forced them to crawl like a dog and locked them in a room. Upon Abbott's arrest in Colorado, he too insisted that Strickland was innocent of that previous murder. And the publicly unnamed teenager who was mentioned a number of times in police reports went on to be arrested over a year later and charged with robbery of a motel and pled guilty to a lesser felony. Strickland was no criminal and still served more time than any of them. In September of 2020, the Kansas City Star investigated Strickland's case. They turned their findings over to Jackson County Prosecutor Gene Baker. Now, Gene Baker, this was exactly who needed to get this information because she had a letter published that stated she believed Strickland was innocent and falsely convicted. She called for his release. This was supported by former prosecutors of Strickland's case. Can you even imagine? Yet in June of 2021, the Supreme Court of Missouri denied the petition for his release. Missouri Governor Mike Parson was asked to pardon Strickland, but in August of 2021, he also refused because Strickland's case was, quote, not a priority, and he wasn't even sure of his innocence. If this isn't the most infuriating racist thing that I can think of, Assistant Attorney General of Missouri Andrew Clark said that the Attorney General's office believes in Strickland's guilt and that he should stay in prison where he belongs. The issues with this statement, a large number of political leaders on the other side of the political spectrum supported Strickland's release, citing largely circumstantial evidence that incarcerated him to begin with, as well as everything hinging on eyewitness testimony that was later recanted and given under duress to begin with. Not only that, but the detective that pressured Douglas into pointing the finger at Strickland had killed his wife only months later in a murder-suicide I mean, come on, there's nothing about this case or a trial that screams slam dunk guilty. The whole thing was disturbingly racist, and four decades later, there were still people who had to know in their intelligent and well-educated brains that this was wrong. I mean, Mike Parson and the Attorney General, there is no way, Andrew Clark, that they even read the reports, because if they would have seen it, if they would have seen what was in the official reports... And all of the documentation, they would have seen that there was nothing that pointed at this man being guilty. And too much, not enough at least, to point at him being guilty, and too much that pointed the exact opposite way. Unfortunately, their political commitments far outweighed any moral compass that they possess as human beings. 
The attorney general's office required Baker to turn over any and all information she had pertaining to Strickland, to which she responded was harassment. In November 2021, over a three-day period, Baker was able to present a case for Strickland's conviction to be reversed. So on November 23rd, 2021, after 42 years of incarceration, Judge James Walsh reversed the conviction. He wrote, Under these unique circumstances, the court's confidence in Strickland's conviction is so undermined that it cannot stand, and the judgment of conviction must be set aside. The state of Missouri shall immediately discharge Kevin Bernard Strickland from its custody. Now, we're all celebrating, right? This is great. It's been 42 years, but he's getting out. The state of Missouri is not compensating Strickland whatsoever for this false conviction. The law only provides for compensation in the event that there is DNA evidence present to exonerate the falsely imprisoned. Since this is not the case, there's no financial compensation offered to Kevin Strickland. It's such a minute number of falsely convicted people who would be able to obtain any sort of compensation in the state of Missouri. And it is different in every state. But his entire life was taken from him. He didn't get to say goodbye to his father when he passed or his mother. And he didn't get to raise his daughter. He didn't get to live his life at all. And meanwhile, those who were guilty were able to run around and commit multiple crimes and were in and out of prison. By the way, he also suffered various health issues, more than likely because of the lack of health care received while in prison. Police had their people and not only arrested and convicted two of them, but they were given the other two perpetrators and still insisted on ignoring them and pursuing Strickland. As if because they started with him, they couldn't look stupid and let him go. And and this is too, they were determined to close cases as Kansas City's crime rate was so high at the time, but they could close this case with two guilty men they actually had. They could have taken the other two, but they just didn't. Unfortunately, by the time Adkins and Bell pled guilty, Strickland had already been convicted. So no harm, no foul, right? Why bother turning it over? Why bother relooking into the case back then? Because they would look like they did a terrible job when they thought, oh, we just, we got it. Signed, sealed, delivered. It's done. So, so sad. Then to receive no compensation after that on top of it all. The Midwest Innocence Project set up a GoFundMe for Strickland that was able to raise $200,000 in June of 2021. And upon his release in November 2021, they had raised over $1 million. He received compensation, but from the people, not the government. In other states, people who had experiences similar to Kevin's received over $20 million in compensation. Just food for thought. According to the Innocence Project, faulty eyewitnesses contributed to over 70% of 360 wrongful convictions reversed by DNA evidence across the United States. As of June 2022, Strickland is in fact suing the medical company contracted to care for the prisoners of the Missouri Department of Corrections for poor medical care. The lawsuit alleges that because of being deprived of essential medical care, he lost much of his mobility and is now confined to a wheelchair unable to stand for more than brief periods of time. While the prison medical system refused to acknowledge his need for further care, imaging, testing, and procedures off-site, they merely gave him copious amounts of painkillers, ignored progressive numbness in his back and legs, and ultimately sealed his fate to be confined to a wheelchair. None of this would have happened had the authorities let an obviously innocent man go. 42 years wrongly imprisoned and missed his entire life, missed raising his daughter, missed falling in love, and the case would have been closed without his conviction. So for what? 
I never know quite how to end these episodes as it's just incredibly mind-blowing to me how some of these stories of these victims end. And there is no end to the list of victims created by these senseless murders and even more senseless circus carried out by the justice system. Head over to Murder and Mediumship Instagram and comment on today's episode post to let me know if you're as infuriated as I am over this. Thank you all for being here and for listening. Stay safe.